HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Hannah Forden for Heritage Radio Network on tour here at Good Food Mercantile in Brooklyn, New York. Um, our coverage today is supported in part by the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm excited to sit down with Heidi Barr, who is the founder of the Kitchen Garden Series. Thanks for sitting down with me, Heidi. Hi, it's great to sit down with you. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So you are based in Philadelphia. Um, and for listeners who might not be familiar with what you do, can you kind of give us a Reader's Digest version of what the Kitchen Garden Series makes? Sure. The Kitchen Garden Series is a line of kitchen textiles made mostly with linen and also with reclaimed and vintage materials. Um, so I make produce storage bags, coffee filters, tea bags, tea towels, and more. <laughs> awesome. Um, so we talked about this a little bit before jumping on air, and, and I think your origin story is really interesting. So you started out as a costume designer, and making kitchen products out of linen was a, a side project for you. So tell me about that journey, and when was the moment when you were like, huh, maybe this needs to be my full-time gig? Uh, right. So as a costume designer, I had become pretty disillusioned with putting all of my energy into making things that were worn once and then went into a closet and ultimately became waste. So I had started working as a working shareholder with a CSA farm in Philadelphia and they had some unmet needs and so I decided to apply my talent to supporting them. So I donate 10% of my profits back to that farm and another one now. Um, so that's where the idea of making something related to food came from. And I, I just started it as a, it was a passion project. It was kind of a lark. And right away, I got so much positive feedback. Right away, people were like, oh, your things are beautiful. What a great cause. And I thought, well, this feels really good, which is the opposite of how I was feeling about costuming in the moment. Um, so I just decided to go with it. And now I'm six years in and it was probably four years ago that I decided to really focus in on making it a business. Um, that's really great and um, tell me I mean obviously from coming from costume design I'm sure you're very well versed in textiles and the different um, qualities and um, uses for different fabrics and um, for those of you listening at home, we're both like in head to toe linen. So I have to ask the question, 
um, why linen was a good medium for you to work in when you're making coffee filters or you're making tea bags. What is it that makes it um, both resilient enough to keep washing and um, soiling again, and and what makes it um, porous enough? And yeah, tell me tell me about linen. Okay, so linen is hmm, linen is 20% more absorbent than cotton. It is stronger when it's wet than when it's dry. It has antibacterial properties, and it is a very clean crop environmentally. It requires very little pesticide and very little irrigation. So for all of those reasons, it makes sense to use it in the kitchen, and that is why it was traditionally used in the kitchen and the bathroom and the bedroom. Um, in terms of, there are different weaves of linen, and the fabric that I source that's new yardage, which is what I get for my um, coffee filters and my produce storage bags, it's a very, it's a pretty tight weave. So for the coffee filters, that means you get a nice slow drip, you get a nice clean cup of coffee, strong, keep you awake, long enough to run your own business. And um, with the produce storage bags, it, it means that it holds moisture for a long time. So it can keep your produce uh, fresh by holding moisture, but it also breathes. And then in particular with the food storage, those antibacterial qualities that it has are, are key. It, like Produce stays for a really long time wrapped in linen. So what is it that creates the antimicrobial um, properties? Is that something inherent to the flax plant? It is. It's part of the fiber itself. So it's it's in the flax plant. So the way linen works is um, you grow the flax. It's a very long fiber, which is what makes it very strong. Like a flax plant, each strand is like three or four feet long. As opposed to cotton, you think of it as a little ball. It's very short, less than an inch. Um, and then the outer layer is, is rotted away. Um, traditionally, you cut it and let it lay in the field, and it was dew that rotted away the outer layer. But now that's usually accelerated um, either with just water, in the case of all of my fibers, or with chemicals, which I don't, I don't do that. I don't use fibers that are done that way. Um, and then you get the vast fiber, which is the center of the plant itself. And that has the antimicrobial, antibacterial qualities to it. Just a miracle of nature. <laughs> That's so fascinating. I had no idea. Um, so you've been in business for six years. Um, I'd love to hear the progression of uh, retailers and also um, retail customers' response to your product. Because I think there's been a shift kind of in the collective thinking about waste, waste surrounding food, waste surrounding packaging for food. We were just talking about this before. I think my kitchen is the greatest source of garbage or compost, anything that gets tossed away, you know, 95% of it is coming from my kitchen. So I'd love to hear kind of, has there been a recent shift where people are more enthusiastic about limiting their waste in the kitchen or, yeah, tell me about what your experience has been. Right, so there's like two big topics of waste around my product. I mean, textile waste is one of the biggest waste problems that we as a species deal with globally. Um, and there is a rising awareness of that, mostly in, in the slow fashion. Um, so, And then I kind of fall through the crack of that because kitchen textiles aren't necessarily seen as fashion, but it is also textile, right? So um, the other reason I use linen is that it's ultimately compostable because um, it's plant fiber. Um, 
And then my connection to food. So it's interesting, where the big shift came for me is when I had the epiphany that my success lies in the food movement, that my work, in fact, although it's textiles, is food. It's about food. It's all related directly to preparation, storage, and consumption of food. And when I started selling at farmer's markets and, and making aprons for people who owned restaurants and working with people who were really invested in the slow food movement is when I started to see uh, my sales really increase and, and awareness really increase um, because there were people who were already thinking that way. And so when I would say to them, well, linen ultimately is a crop the same way that the lettuce in your salad is. They immediately got it and then they understood all of the, the important layers of that, that it be sustainably produced and that ultimately it's compostable so that it doesn't persist indefinitely in the environment. Um, so now, now what I'm doing is I'm pushing into restaurants and grocery stores. That's like I've, I've fully embraced the, that my success lies in the food movement and it's awesome because I get, I get to eat delicious things too. <laughs> it's like, makes me really happy. So. And are you finding that, um, I mean, I'm sure there's a kind of a differentiation between the type of customers you're seeing here at Good Food Mercantile who are very savvy, discerning, and also really supportive of new makers, new producers. Um, so I'm curious what the response has been from buyers, from retailers, um, both here in the heart of the slow food movement and also out in the world. Like, what is that learning curve like? Right. Um so this has been a really great experience for me. Like, I mean, people are so positive and they look at it and they get it right away and they're like, oh, it's beautiful. And, you know, I see how this would be, this would work. Like a lot of people who have like restaurants with a little retail place associated with it, they're like, this would be perfect there. Um, and yeah, just super smart, very well informed. And as soon as I say, yeah, you know, it's 100% linen and say a few things about the crop, they're on it, you know. Um, and for the most part, when I reach into places connected with this slow food and local food movement, I get that kind of response. Um, you know, I do run into the issue of that produced in America means it's more expensive. And I get that with a lot of retailers. Everybody wants to be able to do the classic keystone pricing where the retailer buys in and then doubles the price to sell. And my stuff doesn't necessarily fit into that category, getting it to consumers. So that's where um, I think with any of these movements, um, we have to change the way that we think about how things are produced and who we're supporting and what we're supporting with the dollars that we spend. And I think that that just becomes part of marketing for us craft artisan makers, it's an educational model of marketing. So um, I just have to talk about why it costs that much. I mean, I do think when I go to a market and I'm selling direct to consumer and somebody walks up to me and goes, why is that apron $88? I say, I'm glad you asked. And then I explain, you know, this is where the fabric came from. This is how long it took to make. This is how much somebody makes an hour to stitch on it. And, and generally, you know what, then they buy. That's really nice to hear, and I love that phrase, uh, an educational model of marketing. I think that's something that, especially in the good food world, like leaning into that as much as possible is really vital. 
Um, I want to go back to, you were talking about your partnerships with Urban Farms in Philadelphia, where you're based, and I'd love to hear about um, your work philanthropically supporting urban agriculture and how that ties into your, your business model. Right, so um, that is why the business exists. Like, uh, that came first. I had no intentions of starting a business. I set out to raise a few dollars for an urban farm two miles from my house um, to buy them some new harvest bins. Here I am. Um, so the, the, the urban farms, I just think they're the thing that's gonna save us. You know, that it's like they connect us to a local food movement in such a visceral way um, that I can go two miles from my house and help harvest the food that I'm going to eat is incredible. And the people who are doing that farming are fearless and what it creates in an urban environment is like not only a way to connect humanity to food and food production and make us realize that like carrots don't come from the grocery store, they come out of the ground, um, but it also creates uh, habitat for small non-human creatures to exist and we don't exist without them so I think it's really important to have those pockets um, so one of the organizations that I support is a CSA farm and they have some institutional support they're part of a cooperative grocery store and so they get some support that way they introduced me to the other organization that I support which is a total grassroots um, community-based program in one of Philadelphia's food deserts, and they do not have any institutional support, and they are actually, under the current administration, experiencing pretty massive cuts in funding and food stamp programs. So um, they are really addressing the reality of hunger in America. Um, so uh, to me, there's something really elegant about uh, working in the textile industry, which is traditionally exploiting people, but doing it in a way that doesn't exploit people, and raising food to address the issue, and raising money to address the issue of, of poverty in America, which you don't have to go halfway around the world to look for somebody who is food insecure. I have to go two miles from my house into a neighborhood that has like 25% unemployment and some pretty serious food insecurity, and I can go down there and and dig in the dirt with them and, and grow food and they give me food and I can raise a little bit of money for them. So, I mean, my hope is that my business will grow so much that I'll be able to raise a lot of money and it won't matter if the federal government is cutting their funding, right? Like, true altruist here. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, I won't take up too much more of your time. You've got some beautiful linen to sell. Um, where can listeners find um, the Kitchen Garden series out in the world. Um, what are your retailers we should keep an eye out for? Um, most of my retailers are in Philadelphia, although that's not necessarily true. But if you go to the website, which is thekitchengardenseries.com, there I have a list of my stockists, and you can contact me through there. I have an online store. Um, yeah, so it's growing. <laughs> Very exciting. Well, thank you so much, Heidi. It was really nice talking to you. Yeah, thank you. It was my pleasure. This is Hannah Forden for Heritage Radio Network on tour here at Good Food Mercantile in Brooklyn. 
Our coverage today is supported in part by the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. And I am really excited to chat with some brand new friends I just made by way of delicious cheese, which is the best way to make new friends. Um, I'm joined by Mike Koch and Pablo Solene, is that correct? Of Firefly Farms, which is in Accident, Maryland. What an interesting name for a town. Right, right, right. Well, and there's not even a good story. <laughs> yeah, there's not yeah. even a good story. Yeah, I was wondering, I was, did something terrible happen? No. No, 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 no. 1700s, two lords surveyors and they surveyed the same parcel by accident that's right yeah yeah i wanted okay. gunpowder and wagons yeah but no. Yeah, no yeah that's what i was envisioning oh well well instead we'll just talk about cheese um so you two have had firefly farms for 17 years and you started out just doing goat cheese you've been doing some cow's milk cheeses for the last two years um so tell me what inspired you to drop everything or drop some things and start making cheese. Um, Pablo, you come from restaurants, you started out as the lead cheese maker, and Mike comes from a corporate background, did some nonprofit work, so how did you learn how to make cheese? Well, the true, we, we made cheese for the first time in our farm um, with some friends. Uh, this was in 1998. We made fresh goat cheese just for fun. A neighbor had a few goats, so we got some milk and made it, and it was delicious, and they started thinking about what you do with the farm, you know, we had uh, different ideas uh, and actually was recommended by one of our friends. Uh, the goat cheese is a category that is growing and people be getting more and more, uh, you know, it's getting more popular. You know? So This was yeah. early. We benefited um, a lot um, by the movement, right? The increased interest in local food and to Pablo's point at the time, the Mid-Atlantic was empty. Right, and so we were among Maryland's first cheesemakers, were the most awarded, and we thought, okay, we can, we can do this. Of course, now 17 years, uh, we realize how much we didn't know, but you know, you learn, you learn along the way. I, I think that's a theme of a lot of the interviews I'm doing today is the importance of making mistakes which is always a really lovely thing to hear that from mistakes come really beautiful things. So, exactly. so Pablo, you started out as the, as the lead cheesemaker, so I'm right. sure that there was a certain level of trial and error. Did you apprentice with another cheesemaker? How did you hone your, your skills? You know, cheesemaking is kind of like probably like winemaking or beer or other things. Uh, you could do a lot of research, study, but mostly you're going to learn by doing it. Uh, and like you say, you know, we, we did make mistakes in the early stage, um, but you learn from it and you, you, you know, you evolved, you know. Uh, no, it's been great. And uh, as we grow, we hire other people. We train other cheesemakers. Uh, now we have 20 uh, employees in our plan. Um, we sold milk from six farmers, a uh, local family farm near us. And it's, it's, it makes my heart happy. Yeah. 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 Um, so tell me, what um, what are your kind of signature cheeses, and um, how do they represent these amazing six small farmers that you work with and their beautiful milk? I'm curious, what is what are the tastes of Accident Maryland that we're bringing to the table? So um, we're up in the Appalachians. So the dairy farmers that we um, buy milk from all have mostly Sonnens, which are alpine dairy goats. Um, and from the beginning, our original cheeses 
mountaintop, which is a little surface ripened blue and white mold pyramid that's won, gosh, it's over 30 now, national and international awards. Uh, Mary Goat Round, which is our little soft ripened goat's milk brie style. And for our 15th anniversary, we wrapped that Mary Goat Round in spruce wood and Mary Goat Round Spruce Reserve was born. Um, and it's doing really well. We have been doing fresh chev from the beginning uh, and are ready to launch a line of flavored chevs. And, you know, along the way, some longer aged cheeses. We um, are launching this summer a, a year long aged cheese called Bella Vita with Whole Foods. So we're super excited. Yeah, it's delicious. Bella Vita. Yeah. Um. So I hear you have a retail space at your actual headquarters, um, but you're going to be opening a second one in Baltimore, which is very exciting. Um, so tell me about what your experience in, in retail has been like. Obviously, it's kind of a different headspace than when you're just producing, when you're running the actual business. Um, what have you learned from having to interface with customers? Has it changed uh, your product line at all, having that more direct contact with consumers? Um, you know, our, our shop, we interact with the customers. We Customers want to know, the consumers now want to know how it's made, everything. So in our retail location, we have windows that where they can they can see the cheese makers making the cheese and the aging rooms, aging, you know, you see the cheeses in different stages. Um, it, it's been great. I mean, the store is doing terrific. Um, we cannot be, uh, create a destination, um, you know. And, and to me, it's a great exposure, you know, of our brand. The two uh, are very supportive. So the the retail business really supports the manufacturing business. And to your point, it's it's like a, a daily focus group. You know, you get to serve the cheese and see the consumer's reaction to it. For us, it was sort of a natural extension when we started to grow out of farmer's markets. We thought, oh, well, let's have a little retail store. And, you know, we, we had to do some monkeying around to understand the relationship of the two businesses because manufacturing cheese is very different than retail, to your point. Um, but they can work well together. So, yeah, we're excited about Baltimore. It's a great little place, Whitehall Market. Yeah. Um. So obviously we're here at Good Food Mercantile and I think I've, I've been hearing from so many producers um, what an amazingly supportive community this is, especially for, for new producers, for small producers, because the retailers here are going to be educating consumers about why they should buy your cheese. Um, so have you guys done the show before and what's your experience been um, versus some more traditional retail environments? Um, we are huge fans of the Good Food Foundation and Sarah Wiener. All right, she, she is uh, doing wonderful, wonderful work. Um, and have been at the Good Food Mercantile for, gosh, I'm gonna say six years, five, six years. It feels like yeah. a very long time. Um, and the feel of these shows is very, very different, right? You, you build relationships, you have long form conversation with folks. They're, committed to sustainability and they're here because they know that they've got food producers that have to go through some pretty robust screening to get their products judged and you know we've been lucky enough to win three times and it's the most exciting award we've received 
So, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, they, they care way beyond the product itself, you know, how, how the farmers are treated, how we treat the land. I mean, a lot more. Uh, and, you know, we, we share the same, the same feelings. I mean, we, we care for all that too. You know, it's, you know we're here to, to share, not to take over. Absolutely, I love that. We're here to share, not take over. Um, so tell me about your Good Food Award winning cheeses. Um, what are they and what makes them so special? Sure. Uh, we want, uh, three of our cheeses got Good Food Awards. Uh, the, the Cabra La Mancha, which is a washed rind, uh, got this uh, Good Food Award in 16, 2016. 2016. Um, our Spruce Wrap Merry Go Round. Uh, got in the 2017, 2018. sorry, 2018, uh, and then the latest one was the Mountain Top, uh, the 2019, which is uh, is great. It's always fantastic. <laughs> um, well, you'll have to keep us posted on the opening of your retail location in Baltimore. That's very, very exciting. At what stage are you at? Do you have us? Space? Do you have yeah. spaces there? We've signed the lease. Equipment is being, you know, procured, um, and they're constructing the space now, right? So they think it'll yeah. be open by Labor Day, but you know how things go. So yeah. we're 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 with bated breath. And what is the food scene like in Baltimore? I feel like it's one of those um, cities that don't come to the front of your mind when you're thinking about like an innovative food scene, but I'm hearing more and more like CiderCon being down there this year. And um, do you feel like Baltimore is having a good food renaissance right now? It's, it certainly needs some tourist yeah. draws. Yeah, so uh, Baltimore's up and coming. Yeah. Um, and we, uh, the market um, is within walking distance of Spike Yurta's Woodbury Kitchen. Spike is terrific, you know, and has been gracious uh, user of our cheeses in his restaurants for a while. I love what he stands for. And, and so, yeah, I think, I think Spike was there when, you know, he was creating the food scene in Baltimore, and now the food scene is sort of organically growing around him. It just takes one innovative person, and yeah, we love Spike. He's a really good friend of the network. Um, he was kind enough to cook for our gala last year, so we're we're big fans. He's oh, the best. You? Oh my gosh! Yeah. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I'll get you guys go back to slinging your delicious cheese. But it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Um, you mentioned Whole Foods. Um, where else can our our listeners find um, Firefly Farms cheese? Uh, moms. Uh, Glenn's Garden Market, uh, Wegmans, um, Balducci's. Yes, we've got some great retail partners. Um, and of course, lots of, of restaurants and uh, independent specialty gourmet shops, which are, you know, they're walking all over the good food mercantile. They're, they're keeping the, you know, good food retail scene alive. So. Well, thank you so much, Mike and Pablo. So nice to talk with you. I'm Oscar Simone for Heritage Radio Network on tour here at Good Food Mercantile in Brooklyn, New York. This coverage is supported in part by the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. And I'm here with Caroline and Tim of the Kitchen Garden Farm. Hello, guys. Hey there. Hi. So you guys run a farm, but you also run a 
spicy food, salsa, sriracha company. Talk to me a little bit about the starting and where you guys are now. Start with Caroline. So we're an organic vegetable farm in Sunderland, Mass, and we grow 50 acres of organic specialty vegetables, a huge variety. And we also specialize in hot peppers. And that's where the idea to start making our sriracha and salsa came from. Uh, we have a hot pepper festival chili fest in September that we grow over 100 different varieties for, and we set them all out for sampling, and all the chili head geeks come out and have fun listening to music and eating spicy food and gawking at all the peppers. So we are now building out a commercial kitchen on our farm and really ramping up production because it seems the world likes organic sriracha from farm-grown peppers. I would say so. And what, what year did you guys start producing the hot sauce and the salsa? The first batch of sriracha was in 2013, so it's been you know five, six years now. Salsas came a few years after, and uh, yeah, we've been doubling, ten times as much, you know, growing every year, just trying to trying to keep up with demand. And do you guys produce and package on site of your farm, or how does that work? Um, yes, for the last five years, we've been. Um, working out of a shared facility in Greenfield, which is about 15-minute drive from the farm. But um, this past winter and spring, we're constructing like a, a whole new building with a big commercial processing facility right on the farm. Oh, so that's it's really awesome. exciting. Very cool. So t talk to me a little bit about your products that you guys have here today. Uh, so the flagship product is the uh, red sriracha. It's made of a blend of uh, about five different types of red chilies. Um, we pick them very ripe in the field so like almost so ripe that they're kind of drying a little bit on the plant it gives a really nice red color and a really good um, smooth thick texture so we're using uh, fresno peppers red jalapenos cayenne peppers uh, calabrian chilies and there's one other cherry bomb, cherry bomb. Cherry bomb peppers and so we also have uh, two other flavors of sriracha, which are the habanero, which is a blend of habanero peppers and sweet orange, sort of Italian uh, bull's horn type pepper. Really, really good flavor combo. And the ghost pepper, which is like 15% super hot types like reapers and scorpions and ghost peppers, uh, and then sort of a blend of all of the other peppers that we grow. Wow. And do you guys grow all those like super hot peppers at your yeah. farm? I mean, this year we're growing about 40 types of super hots, like with names like Black Panther and, um, you know, Seven Devil's Pot. Brain. Devil's Brain Devil's and all that. Brains, Seven Pot Dougla, like really crazy stuff. I feel like every year you'll see like the new, the new king of the hot pepper. What is it right, do you guys know what it is right now? It's the hottest pepper. Well, it, I mean, Carolina Reaper is sort of the standard, but um, there's like this Pepper X, which is like, I mean, it sounds like it's something from like a James Bond movie, but. Uh, and a lot of times I'll see people using like the ghost pepper, the Carolina Reaper extract. Do you guys use an extract? No, we only use fresh whole chilies that we hand pick, hand stem, and grind into our sriracha. And what are, what's, what's like the safety like when you're dealing with these like super hot peppers? The, the worst day is when we're actually chopping peppers. So for a six week period in September and early October, we're taking our whole harvest and processing it so we're chopping all of those peppers um, we do wear like s like a painter's mask like a safety respirator that you can get from home depot but nothing too crazy um, definitely don't want to get it in your eyes or on your skin because it does burn um, 
we always go out of there with like our arm burning or like it's splatting up on your face and then you go home to take a shower and then it's like running into your eyes. But it's only a brief season. Um, but the, the kind of the innovation that we've done is to figure out that we can ferment the peppers for it's like initial fermentation during the pepper season and then we can actually stockpile and hold in the refrigeration our entire pepper crop for the whole year so that we can be manufacturing the sauce pretty much year round from our own crop. And as the, you guys are also selling salsas. Can we yeah. talk a little bit about those? So yeah, we grow all the onions, the jalapenos, tomatoes and tomatillos for our salsas. And uh, likewise, it's all processed in season, uh, but we're like making purees and then freezing them. Mm -hmm. And are, are they fermented as well? Not fermented, no. Best thing about the salsas is that we have a big chili roaster, so we fire roast the onions, the chilies, and the garlic. Gets amazing smoky, roasty flavor in there. It really adds depth and complexity. It's what makes the salsa. Yeah, that's awesome. And then, what sort of spices are going into these? Like, what's the kind of inspiration for the flavor? Because you guys have got the Asian-inspired sriracha, and then obviously salsa is more of a southwestern thing. Yeah, I mean, the inspiration is really just farm produce. Mm. So, we're really all of the flavor is coming from the produce. Um, we're not adding any sort of like dried spices at all. It's really just salt, sugar, uh, and acid. So in the, in, we use vinegar for the um, sriracha and then lime juice for the salsas. And yeah, herbs, uh, cilantro, mainly. That's awesome. So I have to ask this question. I don't mean to be abrasive with this, but obviously everyone knows like the hui fong sriracha and it's, ever, it's everyone's it's in everyone's refrigerator, but what sets what sets your, your sriracha apart from that? So, I mean, our sriracha is locally grown, hand-picked at the peak of ripeness, and it's organic. And um, the fermentation step really captures the bright, fruity flavor of the pepper. It just tastes so fresh when you squeeze it out of the bottle. Um, so it's much lower sodium. There's no preservatives. So it's just like a natural product that is a true expression of the pepper's flavor and qualities. I mean, if you were to do a side-by-side -side taste test, our sauce is just going to be a slightly sweeter, very bright and fruity, and just like burst with flavor. Mm. I mean, compared to, I'm not trying to knock Hoi Fong, but it's, uh, you know, it's like hot and it's always the same. You know, it's like a very reliable sauce, right. but ours is just like exciting and fresh and wonderful. Yeah. What was the transition? What was the transition like from running a farm and focusing on the vegetables to starting to create these products and having to worry about the packaging and the selling and all of that? Was that smooth or what was that like? Well, we still run and operate a 50-acre organic vegetable farm, so we're shipping fresh produce daily around Boston to New York to the Cape to Rhode Island. So that's still 75% of our business and. 120% of my mental focus. On the other hand, I'm at the same time uh, developing new products to use um, our produce year-round in this new commercial kitchen that we're building at the farm and um, sourcing all of the packaging for that and um, always ramping up and doing new you know, promotions for our existing products. So it's been extremely uh, just intense doing all of the things, but we're super excited. Um, we feel like the direction we're moving as traction is gaining for our products to grow more of what we're growing for our own use in the kitchen and coming out with new products that use our farm produce. Yeah, actually, currently we're only growing on about two to three acres uh, total for what we're processing into products. So over the next 
several years, we're hoping to do, say, five acres or 10 acres, and so we can sort of scale down slightly the wholesale produce aspect of our business, but that's still the main focus. And what's the workforce like? You guys have a 50-acre farm, and I assume it's not just the two of you. Yeah. How, many, how many people do you need to, to run that? We're about a crew of about 20 at peak season, so um, a lot of the employees that we have are coming straight out of um, the UMass Sustainable Ag program. It's a lot of college graduates, and we're about five minutes from the university. So um, just like local people, people in their 20s and 30s, um, yeah. excited about food the way we are. Um, so yeah, we really have a sort of food positive like workforce and workplace. So we provide farm lunch every day. So we take turns cooking. Um, so yeah, we're trying to build a really cohesive sort of workplace and community on the farm. We're going tubing next week. Yeah, the, the peak number of employees that we want on our farm is the number that we can fit around a table and share lunch together. So that's really has sort of guided our growth decisions on the farm. Um, but yeah, we have amazing people who are serious about studying agriculture and have maybe worked on a farm for a season or two and are considering it seriously as a career and then come to work with us and stay several years and learn and some of them go off to start their own farms. So I know that you guys are also, you guys care a lot about sustainability and doing things like, um, you guys do like some cover cropping and some other techniques. Can you guys talk a little bit about that and integrating sure. that into your operation? Sure, yeah. Um, part of what I was talking about um, with scaling down our overall production to focus on the products is gonna um, allow us to use, say, uh, you know, if we're scaling down to 20 acres, we still have 50 acres that we can really do like a three-year rotation. Um, Currently, we're cropping pretty much all 50 acres every year, um, just because price point is really pretty, it is what it is for produce. You know, there's not, you know, a huge amount of flexibility there. Um, so in order to grow and stay competitive, we've been really using our land pretty heavily. Um, currently, we're cover cropping a half season every other year on our land. So it's more than, you know, some farms do, but we're hoping to do like two full years of cover cropping, you know, so that's sort of the direction that we're heading. Um, and that way we'll, you know, the cost of fertilizer will go way down. We'll be growing a lot of our own fertility on the, on the land and it just promotes a better healthy ecosystem in the soil as well. I would say we do uh, quite a number of organic techniques that are giving back to the land even now. We have tillage um, equipment that, you know, we don't do as much moldboard plowing. We have chisel plows, so not doing as much deep compaction. Um, we use beneficial insects to do pest management. We use row cover um, instead of heavily spraying. So that's just like a fabric that can be a sort of a layer to keep the bugs off. So there's a lot of tools that we have that are sustainable and you know the cover cropping builds the fertility of the soil, but we're really excited about scaling the farm in such a way that we can really improve and increase all of those activities. Awesome. Um, so you mentioned some new things. Are you able to give us a, a teaser on, on some upcoming, oh, all right. So talk to me about what we're looking at right now. Uh, so ever since I started getting the farming bug uh, back in 2001 was the first year I ever worked on a farm. I've been canning my own tomatoes just for personal use every year since then. And I think there was one year where we were like too busy, it couldn't do it. But it's, it's a pretty essential part 
of the way we cook year round. It's like we just always have a pantry full of our own tomatoes. And um, we are really excited to be offering three different tomato products. There's going to be whole tomatoes and uh, sugo, which is a tomato sauce that has also onion, carrot, and celery. And then uh, straight up tomato puree passata. And we're getting all the glass imported from Italy. So it's got this very nice Italian sort of classic look to it. And the art is kind of a graphic uh, script inspired by antique um, milk bottles. So the tomatoes that we're growing are um, San Marzano types that were developed in Italy. We're growing them in Massachusetts, obviously. But um, we did extensive trialing over the last couple of seasons to figure out which were the best performers in terms of uh, our region and the most able to withstand sort of disease pressure in the field and also have the best flavor. So we picked a couple of varieties that we're really excited about um, running with for the products. Awesome, I can't wait to get my hands on some of that. And where, where, can, uh, where can someone like me find your products? Besides on your website, obviously. So in New York, uh, you can find our stuff at the Park Slope Food Co-op, at the Bushwick Co-op, at Bedford Cheese Shop, at Foragers, a um, bunch of shops around the city. Green Grape. Um, green Grape provisions, for sure. Um, but they're also around the country. We're at Buy Right in San Francisco. Um, we're, yeah, a lot of the Whole Foods in Boston. The New York Whole Foods just picked up the salsas. So you'll start to see our stuff uh, more and more places. Awesome, awesome. All right, Tim, Caroline, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks.